things. All right, so now we're going to be in Deuteronomy 13 through 18. But I, I, I gave you a chart a few months ago when we were studying Leviticus. So I want to bring that up again because I want you to, to grasp the essence of what the law is about, right? Because as we look at these chapters, you're just going to see command after command, stipulation after stipulation, all of these various laws. And sometimes you can get lost in them. So let me help you to organize the law as the Bible does. And so that every time you read it, you'll know, okay, this is what it's about. And this is what I'm supposed to do with it. All right? So if we take all of the law, which basically there are 613 stipulations, regulations, and commands in the law, right? Given for the nation of Israel to have a covenant with God, right? We call it the old covenant. So God's relationship to the nation of Israel was a covenant relationship and it was based on law. And this is the law. Now, if we take all of the laws and, and we condense them to one single purpose, it would be found in Leviticus chapter 19. And so here it is. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Right? That's the purpose. So every law fits underneath that purpose. No matter where you're at, if you're reading Genesis through Deuteronomy, the goal is for you to know God and to know that he is holy and then for you to imitate that. Now, how is it that you imitate holiness? Well, there's two things. And Jesus told us that of all the laws, there are two that are the most important, the greatest of the laws. And the first is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to know what holiness looks like, it begins by loving God. You love God, you imitate him, and you love your neighbor. And when you are doing these things that the law is based on love, the law is based on devotion, the law is based on giving what we have received from God. And when we do these things, we are holy. All right. Well, what does loving God look like? What does loving my neighbor look like? Well, you can break it down a little further because um, God gave Moses 10 words or 10 commands. We call them the 10 commandments. You should know these. Because if you understand the Ten Commandments, you understand what loving God is like and what loving your neighbor is like. For instance, God says, don't put anything else besides me. Don't worship any other God other than me. Don't make an idol. Don't bow down to an idol or any graven image. Don't, don't take my name in vain. And make sure you take time for Sabbath, that you rest in me, that you devote time solely for me. That's how you love me. That's how you are holy. Because when you're doing these things, you are imitating me and you love your neighbor. Don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't covet what your neighbor has. Don't, don't do these things. Instead, rather, love your neighbor. And if you are doing these things, then you are revealing yourself as being holy. All right, so now, as we dig into all of these various laws, because there's tons of laws that simply flow down from there, but they are going to get us to loving God, loving our neighbor, and being holy. And the problem is that it is impossible for any person to fulfill all of these laws. You can't do it. I can't do it. And in Israel definitely didn't do it. And we're going we're gonna to realize that today. And so how is it that we can imitate God when we keep failing at obeying God's law? Well, what we need is someone to come alongside and fulfill the law for us. And that was Jesus Christ. And so Christ comes in 
and he fulfills all of the law on our behalf. Jesus said, I did not come to do away with the law, Matthew 5 and 17. I came to fulfill it. And so when we are in Christ or united with Christ, we become law fulfillers because he fulfilled the law as well. Now, as we look to, to Deuteronomy 13 through 18, right? Let me show you another chart to help you explain what's going to take place here. So if the purpose of the law is to be holy like God, then uh, the plan of the law is uh, to love God and love each other. Now we run into the problem of the law. And here's the problem of the law. The law demands perfection. Next week, you're going to hear this because there are blessings for obedience to the law, curses for disobedience. And here's what God said to Israel. If you fail to obey even one of the laws, you have failed to obey all of them. You say, well, that seems unfair. Well, but this is not, remember, this is how it works. If you're unholy in any way, you're unholy in every way. You're not holy, right? So you're not imitating me. So to violate one law is to violate all of them. So now we've got a problem because the law actually demands perfection, but because we're sinful, we can't fulfill it. So, so what, what, what's going to take place? Well, now there's a promise. The promise of the law is that God is going to provide for us such a leader, such a, a, a king and a prophet to help us that we are going to be able to fulfill the law because of him. Where the leadership of Israel failed, both its kings and its prophets, God promised a greater king and a greater prophet to come alongside so that we can be law fulfillers, that we can be holy because of him and through him. All right, so final thing. The Old Testament is about an old covenant, right? This agreement that God made with his people. But unfortunately, because of the kings and the prophets of the Old Testament, God's people were not able to fulfill the law. So God said, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And this time, I'm going to give you a better king, and I'm going to give you a better prophet, and I'm going to give you my spirit. And he's going to write this law on your hearts. And because of the spirit of God, and because of this greater king and prophet, you're going to be able to fulfill the law. You're going to finally be able to be holy, just like I am. And you have that opportunity. Right, so now we're going to dig in. I'm going to highlight uh, chapters 13 through 18, and then we're going to see the prophecy of the greater king and the, the greater prophet at the end of, of 17 and 18. But now, as I, as I just highlight these chapters, and we're going to be digging into the law, I want you to not necessarily, not necessarily focus on the specifics of the law because they were for the nation of Israel, but I want you to ask the question, what is this telling me about the character of God? What is this telling me about the person of God? How do I understand through these laws what God is like? Because I'm supposed to imitate him. All right. So you keep that in mind. All right. Now, chapter 13 of Deuteronomy is all about do not lead someone astray from me. Like God says, if someone leads you astray from me, and they're trying to lead you astray from worshiping me, kill that person, All right? That's how serious it is. So three, three th categories. First, if a prophet leads you astray and tells you to worship other gods than me, even if they say they're a prophet in my name, don't listen to them, 
kill that prophet. If someone in your own family, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, an uncle, if someone within your own family leads you astray and tells you to worship other gods other than me, you kill that family member. If a city, when you enter into the promised land, and I give you all these cities, if a city turns against me and leads people astray and that city begins to worship other gods, I want you to destroy everybody in that city. Kill them all, burn the city, pile up all their wealth, burn that up, and then leave. You're not to build upon that city at all. What does this say about the character of our God? It tells you he hates it when people try to lead his people astray. He hates it when people try to convince you to worship anything other than the one true God. As a matter of fact, at the end of chapter 13, God says, this way, if you obey these commands, this way all of Israel will know what it means to fear me, and they'll be very afraid to lead others into rebellion. Because if you... If anyone tries to lead you astray from the worship of the one true God, all they're doing is acting like the devil. You got to go back to Genesis chapter three, remember? In the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in the garden, just one command, don't eat of that fruit, of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and then now here comes a serpent shows up and he's talking to Eve and he's like, what did God say? And she said, I can't eat of this tree. Why? Well, God said, if I eat of it, I will die. And so now here goes the leading astray part. It's like, oh, come on, surely he didn't say that. No way, you'll die. As a matter of fact, if you eat of that, you'll be like God. That's why he doesn't want you to eat it. So here's Satan leading Eve astray, leading Adam astray. And we all have fallen into sin as a result of that. It's so very dangerous. And so God, in wanting his people to be holy, which means you have to love him and only worship him, he doesn't want anyone to, to lead you astray from that. All right, now when we get to chapter 14, there is a whole list of foods that the Israelites can and cannot eat. Now again, Jesus comes along later in the new covenant and he makes all foods clean. But for Israel, there was, they were to be set apart to be holy as God's chosen people and so there were unclean foods and there were clean foods. And you can, there is an interesting list. You can look at it. And, and just to be quite honest, most of the unclean foods, I don't think you'd want to eat anyway, like camels and buzzards and bats and rats, typically not on my list and spiders and, and certain insects. Uh, but there's a few things that we are allowed to eat these days, praise God, like pork. But, but, but there's also a list of clean foods and, and, and they are given because God wanted to set apart his people from all of the neighboring unbelieving nations. Be different. Be holy because I am holy. Now in chapter 14, it's also interesting because to be holy, God says, I, I, I need for you to be a good steward of your wealth. And I need for you to remember that everything that you have comes from me. And so, for the nation of Israel, they were to take a tenth or a tithe, a tithe means tenth, a tithe or tenth of their wealth, and they just offer it to the Lord. So, you take all of their wealth, they take a tenth of that, and they give it to the Lord. Why? Uh, two things. One, it's an act of love. I do love you, God. 
And it's a reminder, a reminder that everything that I have comes from you. Everything that I have belongs to you. I'm just giving back to you, God, what is already yours. I recognize this is not mine. I recognize this is the only reason why I have this wealth is because of you. And so I am simply offering to you what belongs to you as an act of worship, as an act of love. And so Israel was supposed to set that apart for the Lord, which then it talks about not neglecting the work of the priests and their families. Because in chapter 14, it says these priests, they live to serve you. And because the priests were not given the inheritance of land, the priests were dependent upon the tithes and the offerings of the Israelites in order to provide for their families. And so the principle is give generously. And in verse 29 of chapter 14, it says, if you give generously, the Lord will bless you in all the work of your hands. Now, uh, is the tithe, according to the law, uh, still uh, accountable to us today in the New Covenant? No, it isn't, um, but the principle is. And so even though uh, the nation of Israel was given several laws in regards to their giving, what we do see in the New Testament very clearly is the opportunity for us also to steward our wealth and to give generously back to the Lord. And it is this, this principle of generous giving and sacrificial giving that we see so clearly. So even to this day, we, we give. We say, God, uh, all of my wealth comes from you, belongs to you. I want to give generously back to you because I love you and because I want to see uh, that, that the work of my hands and, and my labor that produce wealth is used for your service. And so we, we become a generous and a giving people as a result. And, and then, you know, part of it also is uh, a test of our faith because when you're giving a significant portion of your wealth back to the Lord, then part of that is, Lord, okay, I'm trusting you, right? I'm trusting you. I'm going to give this to you in hopes that, that, that what I have left will, will be enough for my family, uh, for enough for me to, to live. And, and Lord, that you would bless that which remains. And so I would encourage you to go ahead and try this because uh, the more that I give, the more that I receive, and it is just so much more of a blessing to give. And, and, and you just simply can't outgive God. And so please be reminded of these principles and, and how Israel was responsible for that as well. All right now, chapter 15. Now, some of these laws, if you want, and it's, it's, it's um, kind of frustrating to do this, but some of it's, I think, important, is to take the laws that, that guided the nation of Israel and then uh, put them in comparison to our elected officials and, and how we're being led today. Because even though some of the principles in our government were taken from uh, the principles that we see in the law. Unfortunately, we have left many of those things aside. All right, so now chapter 15, every Sabbath year, which is every seventh year, every Israelite was to cancel all financial debt. And if they had a servant that was indebted to them, so uh, they had slaves back in the day, 
And uh, sometimes you became a slave because of a debt, sort of like the debtor's prison in old England. You, you couldn't afford to pay your debt. You became a servant to the person that you owed. And so, so many servants or slaves uh, were of that. Well, every seventh year, the person that, uh, that was indebted I was set free, right? So you, you, you would go to the person that was indebted to you and you would say, I'm canceling all your debts. You're free. And, and if that person was a slave or a house servant, you would not only release them, you would give them wealth. And I think that's, that's even more important because there's this display of not only are you released from your debt, I'm going to give from my wealth and I'm going to give it to you. I don't want you to end up back in this place today. So you see the grace involved and the generosity of the redemption of I want to free you and then I also want to provide for you. And all of this is because, you'll see this in chapter 15, God said, because that's what you were when I redeemed you. You were all slaves in Egypt. You were poor. You had nothing. I rescued you. I redeemed you. I freed you. And I gave you a tremendous amount of wealth that you now have as you enter into the promised land. And so again, the goal of the law is imitate me. Just imitate me. And, and so they are to do that. Also interesting in chapter 15, the nation of Israel was allowed to loan money to other nations, but never borrow money from other nations. Now that's one of those things where there's quite a big difference between Israel and our nation today. And the, the law was, you are allowed to rule other nations if you rule them by my law. You are never to be ruled by other nations because they are not going to rule you by my law. There's several verses and commands that say, never take advantage of the poor by charging high interest, which is the opposite of what our economy does, right? The poorer you are and the, the worse off you are, the higher interest rate you're charged. And I understand the whole idea of financial risk. I just want you to know there's nothing Bible in all of that. The poor person is a person that should be held. The poor person is a person that should be cared for. Like the moment you find someone who is poorer than yourself, your heart should go to that person. Your, your, your job is never to take advantage of that person. Your job, your goal is to help that person. And that would be in accordance to the law. That would fit the nature and the character of God. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 15 Jesus said this in the Gospels, the poor will always be with us. That's just a fact. But that doesn't mean we don't care for them. As a matter of fact, in verse 10, this is what it says. Give to the poor person. Give to him. And don't, be, and don't have a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in everything that you do. It's a beautiful kingdom principle and it accords with the character of of God. Now, in chapter 15, there's something interesting. Let's say it's a Sabbath year, and you say to your household servant or your slave, okay, you're free. You go. Here's some money. Go on your way. You go, go live on your own. And that person says, I want to stay. I want to stay. I know, I know I'm free, but I want to remain your servant forever. And they were allowed to do that. And what would happen was they would take that person and they would take their earlobe and, you know, put it against a piece of wood and drive a nail through it and puncture their ear and then mark that person. And that person became a, a willing bond slave. 
which means you had the ability willingly to place yourself under the authority of a master. And what I like about that uh, concept is, first of all, is willing. And secondly, it provides a New Testament principle. Because uh, if you read the Apostle Paul's letters, he will often in the beginning of one of his letters say, Paul, a bond servant or a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He will call himself this. Paul will say, I know I'm free. I'm, I've been rescued. But I'm willingly marking myself. I'm willingly placing myself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And, and for Paul, that's, that's how he wanted to live. He said, for me to live as Christ. Because I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Paul chose to be a willing bond slave. So now, let's just be honest. You, you get to choose, right? Right now, you can choose. All of you can choose. You can choose what you believe. You can choose not to believe. You can choose how to act. You can choose who to follow. Maybe you just want to do your own thing. Maybe you just want to follow yourself. Good luck with that. Or, or you can give up your freedom and you can be a slave. You think that sounds ridiculous. I think it actually is quite amazing. Because when I give up my freedom and I become a slave to God and a slave to righteousness, and when I willingly become a bond slave to Jesus, then I find great benefit that everything that now belongs to Christ belongs to me. Now I finally have someone to follow. I finally have a path in order to live. I, I find freedom in my slavery. And, and yet the choice is yours. And so, you know, these, these slaves who willingly did this provide us, I think, a wonderful example. Chapter 16, just simply, God says, remember, remember all that I've done for you. And, and, and I'm going to set apart three major festivals each year for everybody to gather. This is going to be our homecoming. When you're in the land, we are going to gather together and celebrate these festivals. And typically they were celebrated around the temple once the temple was built. But you would gather for uh, the Passover and then you would gather for weeks or Pentecost. And then in the fall, you would gather for the harvest or, or the booths. And so they would have these, these you know, festivals and times of remembrance each year. And we sort of do that as well, right? This Father's Day, we're remembering dads. Mother's Day, we do that, birthdays, anniversaries, and even at church, right? We set apart certain times of the year and we remember the goodness and the grace of God, right? So just do that. And, um, and then, uh, again, it says, once a year, give a free will offering to the Lord. So other than the, the tithes that you give and you're responsible to give a tenth of, of all of your wealth, once a year, just give. Just give. And you get to decide how much. It's like, I'm not, God said, I'm not telling you how much to give. You just give. You, you, you've been given. Just bless the Lord. And this is beautiful. So this is one of my favorite things to do. Like when I receive some income and I'm going to say, I'm going to take a part of this. I'm going to give it away. And it's just, it was amazing. And first of all, there's so much freedom in that. I'm just going to give this away. Lord, who should I give this to? What ministry should I give this to? How can I bless my church? How can I bless someone else? I want to give this away. And, and, and this principle of free will offering basically is what guides the New Testament church, right? So this is how we function here. It's because of your free will offerings, right? Now, Pastor Mark is not showing up every week 
at your house and knocking on the door and saying, get the checking, check, get the check account open or let's go online. You got to, you know, your, your payment is due to open door. He, now, sometimes he wants to do that, but, but he's compelled not to do that uh, because we operate on free will giving and, uh, and there's, there's a joy in that. And so in verse 17, chapter 16, it says, everyone must appear with a gift suited to his means. It's very similar language to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, by the way. Give according to your means and give generously. So there's, there's very similar principles here in Deuteronomy and 2 Corinthians, but everyone must appear with a gift suited to his means according to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm blessed. And, and I see everything that that I receive as a gift and a blessing from God. And that just compels me to want to give in return, right? I just, I, I want to just challenge you, try to outgive God, try to outbless the blessing. It is a great way to live. The opposite of that is to be greedy and to hoard your wealth and to get so frustrated by it and be consumed by the thought of it. And that's no way to live. That's no way to live. God loves a cheerful giver. All right, um, chapter 16 when you elect judges, make sure you elect righteous judges and make sure they do not deny anyone of justice. That's a really important principle because God, the character of God is he is just and the character of God is he is impartial. It doesn't matter how important you are, the most important person and the least important person get the same justice. Our, our nation did not follow that well. And to this day, we still struggle with that. Well, we, we have to recognize in the law, the judge is to be impartial. He is a servant of God who is impartial. And he is a God who is just and judges justly. And so make sure that you do that. And then the last thing in chapter 16 when you do elect judges or your elected officials, they must not take bribes from anyone. Now, I know that there's no elected official in our country that's ever taken a bribe, so we can move on from there. Chapter 17. When you get into Canaan land, don't set up pagan altars. And definitely, if there's an altar that you're using to worship me, don't you dare then set up something to worship another god. I mean, God really hates that. Again, it goes back to the very sense of the law to love God. He's holy. You can't have any other gods beside me. Matter of fact, it's, it says in the law, if someone is caught bowing in worship to other gods, stone the person. But interestingly enough, God is just. You got to have two or three witnesses. So you just can't be like have a vengeance against a neighbor and you're like, I hate that guy. Uh, I know how to get rid of him. You know, I saw that guy worshiping down to Baal the other day. What do you think? Yeah, let's grab some stones. No, it's got to be two or three witnesses that cooperate that. And then you got to have just judges that will adjudicate that rightly. And so God's got it all figured out in his law. Uh, it is also interesting in chapter 17, anyone too foolish or arrogant to obey the decision of my judges, you put them to death. Retributive justice comes from God. You say, man, that sounds so cruel and harsh. A holy God, a just God, demands justice from every wrong committed against him. 
He, he wouldn't be just if that were not the case, right? This is our God. And, and if you just want to summarize a lot of these chapters, chapter 17, verse 7 and 12, it repeats the statement, you must purge evil from you. You must purge evil from you. Chapter 18, just another encouragement, command to care for the priests. They don't have any land as their inheritance. They are ministers who come to serve you. All right, now, uh, don't, don't do this. Don't look at the Old Testament priest and then connect that person with the New Testament pastor. I'm not a priest. I am not a priest. All right, I'm a Christian just like you. We are a part of a priesthood. We are a priesthood, okay? So I'm not a Levitical priest. I'm not a reincarnated Levitical priest. Don't call me a priest. We are a part of a priesthood. What does that mean? It means you can't separate me from you. Don't put me on some pedestal or don't separate me like I'm supposed to be more holy than you. We are a priesthood. We are all responsible to be a priesthood. We are to be holy unto the Lord. I just function as a pastor. That's one of the roles that I have. And, and, I, and I enjoy uh, serving you in that role. But here's, here's why that's important. When it says the priests have no inheritance in this world, that's you. That's me. This world's not our inheritance. Our inheritance is the Lord. Our inheritance is everything that belongs to Jesus and his kingdom. And so we, we function as a priesthood for a future inheritance. Okay? So make sure you get that right. All right, now. Finally, it says, when you enter into the promised land, don't practice idolatry. Don't offer your children as sacrifices to false gods and know that the Lord will drive you out if you practice such things. And what's so sad is that as Moses writes this down, it's almost like he has a sense where he knows Israel's not going to obey these things. And, and sure enough, Israel enters into Canaan and they enter Canaan victoriously. And we see that in the book of Joshua. But as soon as Joshua dies, they fail miserably. Miserably. The rest of the Old Testament is just simply God's covenant people failing time and time again. They adopted the idols of their neighbors. They sacrificed their children. They called upon the names of other gods. They were, they practiced injustice. The rich oppressed the poor. I mean, like, literally every law that we've just mentioned, Israel did the opposite. And and unfortunately, even though Israel had kings and prophets, many of them were no better. And most of the kings were utter failures. They were wicked. Many of the prophets were false. And it got to the point, finally, and you've got to go to 2 Kings chapter 17, where there's several chapters there, just as God is, is going to allow the Assyrian Empire to come and just conquer Israel and scatter them throughout the empire. 
is God is, is basically saying to Israel, I'm done with you and I'm leaving you. I'm removing my presence from you. He tells them why. You gave your hearts to other gods. You offered your children as sacrifices to other gods. Your kings, your prophets, they didn't listen to me. They failed. They failed. And so, because our God is committed to keeping his promises, even if we don't keep our promise to God, within the law, embedded within the law, are the principles for a great king and a great prophet. So as early back as Deuteronomy, there's this, there is this um, uh, foreshadowing of a, of a great king that will come and, and, a, and a great prophet like Moses, but even better than Moses, that will come. And then, but we've got to get all the way to the new covenant or the new testament to see who that is. But let's, let's go back to chapter 17 and verse 14. So here, here's what's interesting. God never wanted for Israel to choose an earthly king. He wanted to be their king. Like, I'm, why can't I be your king? That's what he basically says through the prophets. But Moses knew that at some point in time, they're going to want to choose for themselves an earthly king like the other nations have. And so Moses he sets it up and he says, if you choose yourself a king when you get into the land, which would be unfortunate, but if you do, then, then you got to choose one like this first. He needs to be a king that I appoint, like David. Although most of the kings in the Old Testament were not appointed by God. There are a few were. Second, he must be an Israelite. He cannot be an unbelieving foreigner. Unfortunately, when it comes to uh, the history of Israel, many of the kings were not even Israelites. And, and so that would be a violation. Third, he must not be greedy. He must not go back to Egypt to acquire horses. First of all, God hated the thought that his people would go back to Egypt for anything. And, and he definitely didn't want the kings to go and get a bunch of war horses just so he could just prove himself of having some sort of superior military force. That was actually David's big mistake when he counted his army. And God condemned him and the nation because of that. God said, don't do that. You don't need to do that. And, and what's interesting, if you do know the history of Israel, the last several kings, because the Assyrians were so close, they actually appealed to the Egyptians for help rather than appealing to God for help. Are you kidding me? And God was like, seriously, I redeem you. I've been your God. And in the end, you're gonna go back to Egypt for help and rather than ask me for help, right? I mean, some of you need to take that personally. Like when is the last time you actually really appealed to God for help rather than I'm just gonna figure this out on my own. And, and he must not acquire many wives because too many women will turn your heart. Now that's the Bible saying that. And of course, Solomon and other kings prove that. He, he must not acquire tremendous wealth. That will turn his heart. Think of Solomon. And I love this one. The king is to make a handwritten copy of the law, his own handwriting, and keep it with him and read it as he functions as a king. Now, how different 
would the history of Israel be if, if the kings would have done that? And what's, if you want a, a really important story, go to Josiah, King Josiah, who found the law, made copies of it, and for just a little while, there was great reform in Israel. And then he got a bit arrogant because of his military, and then he failed. But, but see, here's, here's the problem. Even if you look at kings like David and kings like Josiah or Hezekiah, eventually they all fail. They all fail. And then that led to the failure of Israel and the failure of Judah to the point where God eventually says, I, I, I'm going to provide you the king that you need. The king that you need. And that king, my friend, is Jesus. And Jesus, he, he's the one who came appointed by God, right? From eternity past. And yes, a true Israelite, Jesus is. Matter of fact, from, from the, the line, the royal line of Judah, Jesus came. He was never greedy. He never amassed wealth, often homeless and poor. Never took pride in his army. Remember Jesus? He's like, I could call thousands of angel armies down if I wanted to. And I'm not going to do it. Right? He never took pride in that. He kept all of God's commands. He fulfilled the law perfectly. Yeah. He is the word of God. He gave us this word and he humbled himself even to the point where our king died on a cross that you might be saved our king gave himself for his people he is the better king and and not only that he he's the prophet that we need so it's interesting to me because like you know moses was told i'm not going to be able to go into Canaan. And so I'm going to write these books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. I'm going to give you these books so you can remember your history, but I, I don't get to go with you. But, but near the end of his life, Moses says this, chapter 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own brothers. It's like Moses is almost like saying, look, I, I know I can't go with you, but I was a true prophet. Now, I wasn't perfect, but I was a true prophet. And there's going to be a prophet, a true prophet like me, better than me, that the Lord's going to give you one day. And then he says, you must listen to him. I've got that underlined in my Bible. You must listen to him. And then Moses says, by the way, it's what you wanted, because when I went up the mountain, uh, to receive the law and God appeared in thunder and lightning and all that. And you were terrified and you're like, we don't want to talk to God. We need a prophet to talk with him for us. Okay, you ask for it. It's okay. It's a good thing to ask. God's going to give you a prophet. All right, now verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. Now, here's very important. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Now, having said that to you, that puts a huge responsibility on you. If Jesus is the true prophet of God, 
if Jesus truly speaks the words of God, which by the way, I highly would encourage you in a loving way to use this verse, if you talk to someone who's a Muslim, use this verse. If Jesus truly is the prophet of God, then everything he says, you must listen and you must obey. If not, God will hold you accountable. But let's make sure, just like we did with the regulations for the king, let's make sure Jesus is the prophet that Moses was talking about. Okay, first of all, did he come in the likeness of Moses? Well, he absolutely did. Remember when Moses was born and Pharaoh was killing all the male children? When Jesus was born, Herod was trying to kill him because he heard he was the king and he was trying to kill all the male children. Did not Jesus' parents take him to Egypt so that he could come out of Egypt just like Moses was going to lead Israel out of Egypt? Did he not perform miracles like Moses? Except Moses, his miracles calling upon the power of God, Jesus just performed the miracles based on his own power and his own authority. Did not, did not Moses climb Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord and then the Lord appears? He climbs the mountain in order to meet with Moses. Did not Moses cry out to God and receive life-giving bread from heaven? And yet the greater prophet Jesus came down from heaven to be our eternal life-giving bread. Did not Moses strike the rock in order to provide life-giving water, and yet Jesus was willing to be struck, knowing that he is the eternal life-giving water for all who believe in him? You see, in every way, Jesus came to us as the greater king and the greater prophet, but now it's incumbent upon us to know that we're accountable for what he said. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Everything that Jesus said, he spoke from the words of his father. And we're accountable to them. And, and, and so here's the obligation. You must listen. You must obey. He is our prophet king. You must imitate him. And by imitating him, you are holy like he is. Now, I'm going to tell you, I can't imagine a better life than that. But I definitely wouldn't want to be held accountable for not listening, for not believing, for not obey. If you're not a Christian, I know it's a huge ask. But this is exactly what Jesus would ask. Quit living for yourself. Become a servant of Christ. Accept what he accomplished on the cross for you. Turn from your sin. Believe in him. Obey him. Obey him. It is the best of life, but it also is a grave responsibility. And, and I hope this summer, what I really hope is that others will see you 
listening and obeying Jesus. Because then maybe they're going to ask what makes you different. Why do you live this way? Why do you think this way? Why do you believe this way? And so as we imitate Christ, we simply are living on mission, the very mission that Christ asked us to live. No better life. Let's pray.